right off the top here, we connect with one of the hardest working journalists in BC, bar none, and a great follow on Twitter, I might add. I'm talking about Global News, Richard Zussman, who is on the line. And Richard, I mentioned Twitter because I want to know, how's your cut finger today on a day where you've got about 9,000 things on the go? Hurts like crazy, Jody. I went to put (laughs) away the dishes this morning and I caught it on top of a peeler and that was put in the dishwasher by me the wrong way. (laughs) So when I went to put it away, I cut the top of my middle finger and it it hurts a lot. And I'm trying to figure out the right uh, bandage combo by the time we get to the live tweeting (laughs) of the throne speech and the briefing so that it's not cumbersome. I'm going bandage free right now. But it's getting a little bit sore. So we'll see how we go over the next few hours here. Well, I feel for you on one hand, but as a parent who is very diligent on how to load the dishwasher properly so that (laughs) nobody gets hurt, you know, there's that. Let's dive right into what was breaking news on Baldry's Beat on Mike Smith's show with Keith Baldry uh, making that announcement about our vaccine rollout. I'm sure that everybody tuned in right now is like, what? Where are we? How old am I if I'm registering now? Yeah, so it's really, really important for people to know that this is about registering. And yes, the government is making a big deal of this, but the reality is anyone can register at any time for your shot. But this is about guidance, Jody. So they don't want the system to crash. There were a few technical issues this morning where the system actually went offline, not based on volume though. But the guidance is this. If you are In the 55-plus group, so born in 1966 or earlier, there is an encouragement from the province to go on and register to get your vaccine. Then on Wednesday, there will be an encouragement for those 50-plus to register. April 16th, Friday, 45-plus. Next Monday, 40-plus. Again, this is an encouragement. You can go on now and register at any age group, but the province is asking you to take your time because it's not first-come, first-serve here. If you register sooner, it doesn't mean you will be able to book sooner. But the big question everyone will have, Jody, is when can you book? And that's what's taking its time. We're concerned about potential shortages of the Pfizer vaccine. We know that some of the Pfizer and Moderna is now being sent off to communities like Whistler, also being focused in for essential workers in Surrey. So the age-based program... Uh, is going to experience a slowdown over the next few days. We know now that the 66-plus group are being uh, booking. So that's 1955 and earlier. If you're in that demographic, you must register. Then you can book, and the province is working its way down by year to book everyone in who uh, wants to go and get their COVID-19 vaccine. Okay, Richard, you mentioned Whistler. There's been a lot of chatter over the weekend, uh, both on uh, news and on social media with blowback, really, from people saying, "Okay, so everybody who went to Whistler and did all the things that we were told not to do. Now we're all going to get vaccinated before everybody uh, in the lower mainland. You know, it's it's that real frustration piece that is coming into play here in this hotspot, getting getting the vaccination prior to to others in around Metro Vancouver. And I think people need to remember that there are people who live in Whistler and that is their home and their community. And that community is experiencing huge cases of COVID-19. When, when the case numbers were released by region last week, how sound is how it's described uh, through public health had 410 cases uh, during a week long period from March 28th to April 3rd. Uh, that's a lot higher than anywhere but Surrey. And Surrey continues to be the hotspot. And yes, 
There are concerns that the virus spread was driven by young people not following public health orders. But what I think we forget is there may be one layer of rule breakers there, Jody, but then they bring the virus into their communities and into households of their loved ones and into their workplaces. And then it gets people sick who had nothing to do with breaking the rules. And so I get that at times it feels like those who are not following the rules get rewarded with vaccine, but it is public health stepping in to try to mitigate the spread to stop it rather than it then being brought into workplaces and homes and things like that. And then that's where we see the the rapid growth of cases that we're experiencing right now in the province. I agree with you 100%. And I love the way you frame that because this is not about pointing fingers. This is about finding the hot spots, the most endangered segments of our society, wherever they may be, and trying to hit back with vaccination. So let's talk about vaccine rollout. You mentioned, uh, and we saw on Global Morning News today, uh, Dr. Penny, Penny Ballum speaking about yeah. the slowdown in the Pfizer delivery, like feels like two seconds after Justin Trudeau was, you know, live on our television saying, we're ramping up, there's going to be 18 million Pfizer vaccines coming in. Like, you know, it felt like, here we go. And then it's like, actually, no, what, what is the stall here? What, what are we facing? Yeah, so this is all about, you know, shipment schedules and distribution. And if vaccine arrives in Ottawa or arrives in Canada, it then must be distributed uh, across uh, the country to different jurisdictions. We know we have had problems uh, with Moderna vaccine arriving in British Columbia. And now Dr. Ballum, as you mentioned, said we're going to have some issues with the Pfizer vaccine arriving as well. Uh, We know that with the changes in where the vaccine is going uh, in terms of hitting those hotspots, those distribution issues will play a role as well. And, you know, we can only vaccinate with what we have. And so far we are progressing at a rate where if we keep up this current pace, everyone that wants a vaccine uh, will get a first dose by the end of June, sort of early July. The province is hoping to ramp up to 50,000 vaccinations a day. Now we're doing it our best day, about 40,000 vaccinations a day. Uh, But that is all contingent on actually having the vaccine to distribute. So unlike what we're hearing out of provinces like Ontario, where there are vaccines sitting in freezers, that is not the case in British Columbia. So there's been very little waste. We've tried to get those numbers, but we don't have any specifics. That may be something that comes up at the briefing at three o'clock today because there is concern. But if there is waste, Jody, it is a very small percentage. The other part in all this as well is the AstraZeneca rollout. And so we're waiting on guidance from the National Advisory Committee on Immunizations to find out if they're going to change the recommendations in terms of who can receive that shot, because that has severely stalled our ability to vaccinate priority workers. So we're hoping to find out details on that at some point soon, uh, because that will fundamentally change the way in which people get vaccinated. But right now, basically anywhere in the province, you can contact your local pharmacy and see if they are providing the AstraZeneca shot for those between the ages of 55 and 64. And that is a, a separate stream to try to get more people vaccinated so we can move through the age-based process very quickly. And all of this 
sort of is the cloud that looms over this briefing at three o'clock, Jody. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've heard the talk. There's a lot of talk around whether the province is going to come down with stricter measures this afternoon at three o'clock. Yeah. My sense is there is a confidence in what the province is doing internally. They believe they have the right restrictions in place. They just need people to follow them. But, you know, there's a lot of stress from teachers, from frontline first responders, from people out in that community about is should and could and will the province do more to put in restrictions to help break those lines of COVID uh, transmission. Jody Vance in for Jill this week. You can find Ms. Bennett on Mornings with Simi. Simi's taking a little bit of a vacation. No vacation for Richard Zussman. Oh, no. In fact, it's probably triple duty today for you, Richard, with so much news right from the start of today. And it will continue to be busy as we get into the afternoon. The speech from the throne, just before we go to the phone lines at 604-280-9898, you can call in with questions for Richard. But I wanted to get a little bit of a preview, our second speech from the throne in, what, four months? Yeah, so it was funny because I was looking at this yesterday. Back in December when the province did the throne speech following the election, it was at a time where we had high cases, we had new restrictions, and I remember the intensity of that briefing from Dr. Henry and Adrian Dix following the throne speech, and it feels very, very similar today. Yeah. Again, record-breaking cases, uh, new restrictions, and so, yes, we will get this vision from the province, but it will very quickly be overshadowed by this briefing. But what's important about it, it will outline some of the steps we're going to see over the next few months, what the government is committed to doing. A lot of it will be based on what was promised in the election, but even more of it will be based on COVID and the province's uh, response to that, both on a health side as well as on an economic recovery side. So at 2.15, Janet Austin, the lieutenant governor, will read the speech and it sets up the budget, which is in eight days from today, next Tuesday, April 20th, the NDP's first COVID budget, the post-election budget. Uh, it will be sort of the roadmap, not just where we're at, financially with deficits, but also where we are spending that money to help us try to slowly claw our way out uh, of COVID as we are also managing an ongoing health crisis that, you know, could be with us for, for months and months more. We just, you know, at this point, we're just hoping that the vaccine will catch up to these variants in a race we are at this point losing. All right. We uh, will be carrying a part of that speech from the throne at 2.15 that Richard just mentioned. Of course, the uh, briefing from our provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, along with Health Minister Adrian Dix, will be at 3 o'clock. You will hear that on the Linda Steele Show. Right now, though, we got just a few minutes here, Richard, so I want to take some calls. We've got... Uh, Phone board lights up when Richard Zussman is on 604-280-9898, star 9898 is a free call on your cell phone. We start with Chris in Langley. Welcome to the show, Chris. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, like you just finished saying, Richard, about the race with the vaccine against the variants and whatnot. Uh, you know, to me, the elephant in the room is the second dose here as we struggle just to get the first doses into as many people as we can. And we've extended the time frame in between second doses we're still going to run up to a situation where people are now going to start needing that second dose yeah. and our supply of vaccines, you know, is, is hardly catching up just for the first dose. So how is that going to play out? I mean, I just see it like, as you say, this uh, thing is going to drag on for a few months more. I could see that even extended. I don't know what the, the end result, what, what's the negative result if a person goes past their vaccine time for the second dose? And what's the result? Are they back to square one? They're going to have to get a first dose again, a second dose, or is it shot for them? They need an old new vaccine. I mean, these are kind of questions that, like, 
I'd like answers to, uh, I don't know if there is, but you know. <laughs> there are, Chris, and that's a great, great, great question. Great question. Because uh, there's, there's a lot of pieces there. And so we are learning more and more about the efficacy of the vaccine. Right now, the guidance is that the four-month gap uh, is good enough to ensure that the first dose is effective uh, and that the second dose will also provide that booster. We don't know yet, Chris, if we can extend that gap a little bit longer, maybe something uh, that provincial health, not just here in BC, but around the world are working on. This is not guidance that BC comes up with alone. We work with the National Advisory Committee on Immunizations, but also international bodies to determine this. And, uh, you know, government organizations are doing work on this and the drug companies are doing work on this as well. So that part is really important. The other part you asked about is something that I think a lot about as well. As we start getting into May and June, we're going to start catching up to this four-month period for those in 90-plus and, and healthcare workers who saw their first, their second dose delayed. And that is going to mean deferment of tens of thousands of doses to second dose that yeah. could possibly be first dose. So that's why, based on the math I'm looking at now, I'm a little bit reluctant to say that we are certainly going to have everybody vaccinated once by the end of June, because as you rightly mentioned, we're going to have to start catching up on those second doses. So the science could change. It's getting watched very, very closely here and everywhere else. But it is going to be a challenge that if supply continues to be an issue, it could potentially delay those in their 20s and, and their high teens, the adults that are eligible for the vaccine. It could potentially delay when they get their first, first dose. But we're a long way between now and then. A lot can happen with clinics yeah. and, and supply. And the government is still optimistic. The federal government is optimistic. We'll have the supply. But, yes, it's worth thinking about, Chris, and, and hopefully that provides uh, some of the info you're looking for. Oh, it's a great answer, Richard, if I may. That was so well said and, and it's spoken in layman's terms that we can all consume because there are so many moving parts here. Only have 30 seconds to go. What are we hearing with Janssen, that Johnson & Johnson uh, yeah. approval pending that Dr. Henry sort of alluded to last week? Yeah, so we have the approval. We just don't have it yet in Canada. So we know okay. that we will be distributing the Janssen vaccine. But there is no timeline yet on when it's going to be in Canada. We know what they're using in the United States. It's a one-shot vaccine. Uh, it's yeah. easy to move around. And there seemed to be for a while, Jody, some optimism that we'll start using it by the end of April in terms of getting it here um, and distributing it. But we don't know for sure. So that's obviously something really important to watch because it will immediately go to our priority worker campaign, which will target that group of about 300,000 British Columbians seen as a high priority for transmission of the virus due to the work that they do. And, and many of those people, as we mentioned, are already being vaccinated, but that's, that's a really crucial piece to have access to that vaccine. Brilliant. Thank you, as always, Richard, on a very busy day for making some time for us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the call, and, and, and thanks for having me, Jody, as always. Jody Vance in for Jill this week. You know, it seems like every day is Groundhog Day during this COVID-19 pandemic. I don't know. You feel like that? I feel like that. Wash hands. Keep distance. Stay home if sick. Essential travel only. Work from home if you can. Stay in your household bubble. We've been hearing it. We've been living it in the cycle of unwanted repetition in, this, in the name of public health. I mean, we really just have to follow those guidelines to have a much better outcome here. And we find ourselves in this anxious moment. These numbers are troubling. Who knows what the, the three days uh, total announcement coming at three o'clock this afternoon might hold for British Columbia. Of course, CKNW will carry that live at three o'clock on the Linda Steele show. Uh, we also have the, the speech from the throne coming up, I should note, at 2.15 today. Um, 
Interesting to note, really, however, within all of the sameness we're living in this timeline, a predictable path through this pandemic, believe it or not, almost a year ago, almost to the day that I first heard about the timeline of a pandemic, and it was our next guest who educated me on that. Uh, He predicted every turn, seriously, on this journey uh, that we are going through right now in COVID-19, including where we are right now. Good friend of the program, host of the Super Awesome Science Show podcast and author of The Germ Guy, Jason Tetro is with us. Hello, Jason. Oh, hello there. I'm glad to have you on here. I mean, you've literally been monitoring my last conversation with Richard Zisman because there was so much talk <laughs> about vaccine and, and, and protocols and public health initiatives. And let's just unpack what you heard there uh, from uh, my illustrious colleague, uh, Richard Zisman, uh, with regard to uh, our vaccine rollout and, and, and how the rollout has shifted a little bit here in, in, in changing tack and going up to Whistler and, and really vaccinating everybody uh, above the age of 18 in that area. Yeah. So what's happened is that we now realize that the vaccine has been doing a really great job on the elderly, uh, those who have been in the highest risk, and uh, as well for their cares like yourself. And so in that light, we thought, okay, this is really great. Uh, We also were dealing with a a version or a lineage of the virus that was really focused on the uh, elderly age groups. We're in a little bit of a different situation now. Um, Thanks to one of those mutations that occurred in the spike protein, we now have these variants of concern, and they seem to be uh, essentially getting more into younger generations. And that's a major problem because a lot of these younger generation people are what we call our essential workers. And so what's happening is we're sort of shifting the focus now to try and make sure that we're, we're still chasing the variants at the moment, okay? But what we're hoping to do is to be able to catch up to the variants by doing these, um, I I guess, more localized priorities and then eventually get to a point where we do have everybody having that first dose by around the end of June. Now, remember, we are going to be getting upwards of one to two million every single week uh, in terms of national vaccines. So we should be able to get there. Where the big problem lies right now is that people are still concerned about that second dose. Mm -hmm. And this is something that, you know, has been really discussed a lot over the last few months. And what's really happened is we don't really have data for single dose over a long period of time for Pfizer. They won't let us have it, basically. Um, They only want at 28 days for a second dose. When we look at the other vaccines, we actually see that 80% Uh, effectiveness happens to occur at around 15 to 20 days after the first shot. And then it just kind of hangs on out there for about six or so months. So going for that four months is going to be okay. But if we have to extend it so that we get everybody that first dose, it should be okay. Well, that's the good news, right? And that that yeah. primer dose that you've taught me about, it's, it's you know, how you want to prime your immune mm-hmm. system to create this defense against the virus. I want to get yeah. into I want to get into the details of that and I'm sure we will when we get into the the questions here and I want our listener to know you can call in 
9898 You want to ask the scientists the question about any and all vaccines? I know there's someone out there wanting to talk about AstraZeneca mm-hmm. and the safety and the age group and how it all Should you wait for Pfizer if you have an opportunity to AstraZeneca? There are so many of those discussions taking place right now. It's it's understandable and really quite something. Uh, so ask the scientists. 604-280-9898, star 9898 is a free call on your cell. But before we get to calls in the next segment, Jason, I want to ask you about the timeline of a pandemic. You told me mm-hmm. 10 months ago about the timeline of a pandemic, <laughs> and you actually foretold where we are right now. And I just want you to help bring some calm to the chaos here because it is predictable as to right oh, down yeah. to and including the riots in Montreal last night. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's It's... Well, okay. So it's not necessarily funny, but to me, it is amusing that it's repeating itself over and over again. We just never seem to change. So if you remember back in November, I said it was the halfway point. And then I said around February to March, going in that light, we would be starting to hit into the third act. And then once we get into the third act, we are probably going to have some kind of upspring, whether it be from the virus in the terms of variants or whether it becomes the people because they're just sick and tired of all the restrictions. We got both. So right now what's happening is that we are in a race between variants and vaccines. We know that. But in order for us to win, we need to maintain vigilance and we have to maintain those validated methods that are going to help. And I know a lot of people are wondering, well, what about something like schools, right? Yeah. Well, when you look at it, remember, anything that is like a school or a correctional facility or even a healthcare facility is a reflection of what's going on in the community. So if you all of a sudden start having large amounts of spread, like we're seeing with the variants, you're probably not going to have much happening in the schools. It's only when it reaches a positivity of like 20%, which is, you know, where they are in Ontario, that you start realizing that these areas are going to start incubating as opposed to, uh, you know, reflecting. And that's when you want to shut them down. That's why Ontario is shutting down. But we are in that stage right now where all of this is happening at almost the speed of light. But if you remember correctly, the ends of Star Wars, the ends of the Avengers, and also the end of Die Hard also seem to go at the speed of light, too. We're in the third act. That's how it works. It gets noisiest before it gets better. I know. What wouldn't it just be nice to have like a nice, quiet notebook ending? Uh, well, except yes. for the, Frankly, the death of the two main characters. Except for that, but, except yeah. for that part of that. Let's yeah. not have that. But one of the one of the things that you did say while uh, you were sending me notes while I was speaking with Richard Zussman, one of the things that really stands mm-hmm. out to me was when you said BC has the right restrictions, but how could yeah. can could they be without appropriate compliance? Is it the fact that we have enough people saying, you know what, I'm done with this? Mm-hmm. Well, part of it is that. And, and the other part is just simply people are ignoring the rules. I mean, yeah. we just recently saw a, a story that came out that actually talked about how many people arrived in Vancouver by air and just decided not to go to a you know government uh, authorized accommodation and just said, nah, whatever, find me. Yeah. Not going to do your quarantine. That, there were several... <laughs> Yeah, I know. They're not going to do the quarantine and they're sick with COVID. That's what the tests have actually shown. And so they're going out into the community. So the reality is compliance is not there for a number of different reasons. But we're also human. And as we now know, unless we have the appropriate enforcement of the measures, compliance is probably not going to happen. And for the record, this isn't new. 
Jody Vance in for Jill this week. We are continuing with Jason Tetro, host of the Super Awesome Science Show, also the author. He's the germ guy. He knows about what we're talking about in COVID-19 and what we need to do to push back against this virus. I wanted to have Jason on. I wanted to have you on to talk about the pandemic timeline and, of course, answer questions from our listeners. So the phone lines are open. 604-280-9898. Star 9898 is a free call on your cell. And we're going to start with Sandy in West Van. Welcome to the show, Sandy. Oh, hi. Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, um, okay, so my question, my daughter is 34 and she's four months pregnant. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just uh, interested in getting some information about vaccinations for pregnant women. I haven't heard too much about it anywhere. It's a good yeah, question. They, they haven't done uh, clinical trials uh, with pregnant women. That's one of the reasons why you haven't heard anything. Um at the moment, I believe that the recommendations are that uh, it is safe for women uh, who happen to be pregnant. Uh, but it's funny, I was actually just talking with a healthcare worker who was pregnant, and she was saying she was going to wait till her third trimester before getting it. So really, the best thing to do would be to talk to your obstetrician gynecologist and have a discussion about what would be the best option for you. And if the answer is not to get a vaccine right now, then to make sure that the people around you are vaccinated so that you can maintain that, that protection of a herd immunity. It's a very good question. And I agree with that answer in terms of the third trimester. Speaking with your obstetrician gynecologist is, you know, job one. Um, But a really good girlfriend of mine uh, waited until her third trimester is now vaccinated with Pfizer and she feels great about it. There were no side effects uh, to this point. No ill Mm -hmm. effects. Question from email here. This from uh, Jenny, a regular listener. I'm curious about how the 1919 ended. People stopped dying with no vaccines in national health care. Then all of a sudden the roaring 20s and no more deaths. No one has said how that happened and i think that our pandemic is similar to ours would we would be very interesting to know and helpful well everybody died that that's that's basically what it came down to you if you got the virus you either died of the virus you either died of a secondary pneumonia due to bacteria or you survived and usually ended up having some kind of problem afterwards. Uh, Very rarely did somebody not have uh, a long-term impact after having been infected. So that's basically what happened in 1918, 1919. Uh, We're dealing with a little bit of a different virus, coronavirus, but we could potentially see the same thing because how many of us have been hearing about long COVID, right? So yeah, yeah, getting the vaccine is going to be the best way to end this pandemic with the least amount of damage possible. All right, 604-280-9898, star 9898 is a free call on your cell. Tony in Surrey, you're up next with Jason Tetro. Good afternoon, Jody. So um, back in November, very beginning of November, I was I was diagnosed with corona. I was actually asymptomatic. Um, I went because mm-hmm. my wife was uh, had gotten tested, had gotten it. And um, so... Six months later, so beginning of April, I asked my doctor if I can go get a serology test, and I did. And the serology test came back with, you know, very much uh, immunity to it still. That's six mm-hmm. months later. Um, so that was just from having the the actual coronavirus. So I'm thinking mm-hmm. that if the vaccines duplicate a little bit of that, that, you know, the extended period of times will probably be very, very um, helpful. Of course, I think, you know, yeah, getting the first viruses, the first dose is important, right? So, 
Yeah. Thank and you, the other thing that's coming out of the information that we're learning right now, and when you look at people who had natural infection versus vaccine, is that the vaccine is giving you protection against reinfection from one of the variants. So getting a vaccine is probably going to be the best thing for you, even if you've already had a uh, natural infection. Uh, you, may just not, you may just not need the second dose. We're still in that process, but get that first dose if you can. And here's a question from Richard by email. I got open heart surgery when I was born and asthma too, but fine now. Should I get a vaccine or just wait? Uh, I Again, getting the vaccine should not be an issue. Uh, but again, this is something that because you have a chronic health condition, it is something that you really should be talking with your healthcare provider. I will always state that, that um, and, and even myself, I have a chronic health condition. I always talk to, you know, the people who are taking care of me before I go ahead and do any of this. Yeah, you got to trust the advice of your physician for sure. We only got two minutes to go here, but I want to get as many mm -hmm. calls in as we can. 604-280-9898. Julie in Surrey, you're in the hot seat. What's your question for Jason? Hi, I'm just wondering if you can talk to the numbers of recovered people. I understand that once you're not contagious after a certain period of time, either 10 days or 14 days. Mm -hmm. So does the recovered number indicate when you're not contagious or when you are actually healthy? Yes. Yeah, so recovery means that you're no longer showing symptoms. Uh, you may still show a small amount of virus, but probably not enough to be able to transmit it to somebody else. That's what the 14 days is for. Uh, but we would suggest that if you have been infected and you did have severe symptoms, I would almost go 28 days before going back to regular contact just to be absolutely sure. Yeah. Err on the side of caution here. Andrew and Maple Ridge, you're up next. What's your question for Jason? Hi there. Yeah, um, I'm 56, so I've just qualified to register. And uh, in my uh, uh, research or trying to you know, learn as much as one can, uh, my question is about the delivery method and the RNA and the two companies, Pfizer and I, can't I guess it's Moderna, Moderna. Um, and they use the, su the super frozen type. What do you think uh, of its um, untested technology? And is that a risk that one should weigh? Like, I'm, I'm all for vaccines, don't get me wrong, but I'm yep. like, I want to get a Johnson & Johnson because it's an old, it's been doing it since polio, it's the same style of vaccine. What's the difference mm -hmm. in the two styles of delivery in this RNA? Oh, yeah. Well, the, the, the mRNA version has been delivered for like 30 years. Um, and believe it or not, Peter Cullis, who was at the University of British Columbia down the street, was the one who invented it. Amazing. Anyway, yeah. uh, the fact is, is that it is well-trusted technology. It's been used for cancer and a number of other things. So in that light, it's not new. It's just an overnight success, right? Uh, as for the other viruses, um, yeah, they're, they're, they're technology that we trust. So you should be good no matter what vaccine you get. Get your shot. As you said from the very beginning, Jason Tetro, the best vaccine for you is the one first offered to you. I always appreciate your time. Thanks for this. It was such a pleasure. Take care. Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett, and I'm super excited about this next segment because, you know, I love my sports and for hockey fans. Today is basically Christmas in April because it's the NHL's trade deadline. But did the Canucks COVID-19 situation impact their ability to wheel and deal? Our show contributor, John Jang, has the latest on that. Good afternoon, Jody. It's a busy day in the world of hockey. The NHL trade deadline came and went at noon today. And yes, the Vancouver Canucks did get involved in a small number of trades. But we also heard over the weekend that the team had placed yet another player on the NHL's COVID protocol list. For all the latest, we now connect with Irfan Gaffar, lead reporter at the fourth period. Irf, always a treat to chat with you, my friend. How are you? 
Not bad. Busy day with uh, NHL trade deadline, but I'm doing pretty well. How are you? Yeah, I'm okay. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, busy day in the NHL. Uh, the Vancouver Canucks made a couple of moves. We'll get to that in just a few minutes because, Irf, with you, I wanted to start off with uh, what's the latest on the Canucks COVID-19 situation. Over the weekend, we had heard another player identify to that NHL COVID protocol list. Yeah, that was Jay Beagle. I mean, uh, there's a sense where that, that could have been a false positive, but nevertheless, the Canucks were supposed to open their facilities to um, some of their players on Sunday. And, you know, the league put out a press release saying that wasn't going to happen. So the facilities as of Monday were open. I believe 10 players skated. Um, there's still quite a few in, you know, COVID protocol. So, you know, like it is with, with, with anything right now, it's it's kind of day by day. And these players will start to come off the NHL's COVID list and um, we'll be able to go back and, you know, start trying to get in shape for, you know, hopefully a, a Friday evening game here in Vancouver. All right. So it seems like at least that timetable is still in the plan to try and get this team back on schedule, back on track and get games going by this weekend. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that that's what the National Hockey League wants. I mean, look, I know for sure that Jake Bertanen won't be playing because of his timeline as when he tested positive. So he needs to obviously be self-isolating and, and, and quarantining for, for at least 10 days. So that puts him out of the lineup. I'm pretty sure Nate Schmidt won't be playing either. So the Canucks will definitely be without a couple of their, of their key players um, when, when they return to play, at least for the first couple of games. And then you hope everything gets back to normal after that. And regarding Jay Beagle, the player that was named uh, over this past weekend, uh, he wasn't going to play anyways. He's now dealing with an injury. But latest I'm hearing with Jay Beagle here, Irf, is that uh, his injury could be potentially long-term. Yeah, uh, that's the word. He's on long-term. He's on LTIR right now. So I think that, you know, for the Vancouver Canucks, they have to make a decision as to kind of which direction they're going to go with Jay Beagle. And Jay Beagle needs to make a decision as to which way that he wants to go for himself, you know, and his family. And if this injury is as bad as it, as it is and, and, you know, it could, it could hinder him in the future, then a decision needs to be made this summer by, you know, Jim Benning and, and the Canucks management and coaching staff. And obviously at the end of it, you know, Jay Beagle is definitely going to be consulted on that. But um, it's one of those things where, you know, you, you look at the player and, and you hope that, you know, at the end of it, he's a human as well. And, you know, you know, you're about hanging out with his kids and, and doing things like that. So when things happen like this, when guys go on long-term injury reserve and, and, and you, you, you just hope for the best for them as a person at that point, and hockey takes second nature. Right. Now, you uh, did mention it earlier. Trade deadline has come and gone as of noon today. Uh, the Canucks did make some moves. Let's start with the first one, chronologically speaking. Adam Gaudet, no longer with this team, traded to the Chicago Blackhawks. Did that surprise you a little bit? Not really. I mean, Adam Gaudet was you know, a guy that was kind of in and out of the lineup a little bit this season, never really found his game. Um, for me, if you're not an everyday NHL or at the age of, you know, 24, 25, 26, it's, you know, it's maybe it's time for a change of scenery. And that's exactly what Jim Benning said. So, you know, good on the Canucks for, for, you know, making a move and, and, you know, getting, you know, putting him in maybe a position where he's able to succeed over there in Chicago and, you know, them getting a player that, you know, they think that can, you know, come and be able to contribute on a nightly basis. So, um, for Adam Gaudet, I'm not entirely surprised there. You know, it was just kind of the way things went. They moved him from center to the wing, had a little bit of success, but I think he was playing his own end um, that kind of hurt him a little bit. And then a few more trades just after the deadline had passed. It was trickling in. Uh, the Canucks shipping defenseman Jordy Ben to the Winnipeg Jets and in a sideways move, acquiring defenseman Madison Bowie and an additional draft pick. What do you make of those moves? 
I don't mind the Bowie move. I think that, you know, that, that that's another depth defenseman. Look, I still think they need a top four defenseman and they, and they need a third line center. And I, and I think that, you know, there's going to be some interesting talks this off season with Brandon Sutter and what's going to happen there. And are they going to resign him? And, you know, is he going to take a healthy, healthy, healthy pay cut to remain a Vancouver Canucks? So I think that there's, that has a lot to do with it. Um, I don't mind the Bowie deal. I, I think it's, I think it's good for the Canucks to be completely honest. Um, Jordy Ben, you know, as Jim Benning said, they weren't going to re-sign him at the end of this season, and it's a chance for Jordy to keep his career going. And, you know, when it, when Winnipeg's going to have a decent shot at, at, you know, making the playoffs and then going on a little bit of a run here. So, you know, for them, it's being able to get a veteran defenseman that can play big minutes and, and, and has played in some key situations as well. All right, Irv, and last question. Any updates on Elias Pettersson? Because this team goes, uh, depending on how far Pettersson can really carry them, and he's been missed. <laughs> Yeah, he has, but they've been playing not bad without him. So, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where you, you know, you have other guys that are stepping up. Pedersen skated. Um, we do know that. He has been skating, and he's supposed to be a specialist here in the next couple of days. He was supposed to – Jim Benning, the last time he spoke, said that Pedersen was supposed to be a specialist that week, but I think things got changed and kind of see the way things are going. I don't think his injury requires surgery, but, you know, the Canucks want him back as soon as possible, obviously. All right. He is Rafan Gafar, lead reporter with the fourth period. Appreciate you doing this, Irf. All right. No worries. Thank you. Oh, I love talking sports. Love talking with you, John Jang. Uh, excellent piece there with Irfan Gafar and, and talking about the Canucks situation. Don't we all look forward to a time where the only thing in our minds is trade deadline? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I do. That feels, that feels like a lifetime ago at this point. But uh, it was kind of nice just to be distracted for a few hours this morning, checking Twitter and looking for hockey trades and just hockey trades. That was very satisfying. I'll put it that way. Right, and seeing the, the moves late, well, late-ish for us, but certainly late <laughs> Eastern time for the Toronto Maple Leafs and whatnot, and seeing all the hockey guys, it's like, come on, I'm going to have to you know, work for 19 hours tomorrow to get it all done. It's a, it's a very <laughs> exciting time uh, in the sports world, in the hockey world, and certainly in Canada, and yet it feels like it's just taken such a back seat when it comes to you know, how COVID-19 has hit our Canucks so very hard. Yeah, absolutely. Now, according to Earth in that conversation, the Canucks and the NHL still trying to work and get that uh, timeline going so that maybe, just maybe, by this Friday, they can actually get back, play some games. Surely they're going to need some uh, taxi squad players coming up, maybe a few players from Utica getting a phone call and saying, hey, we're going to need you for the big club. Earth did kind of mention Vertanen, likely not playing. Nate Schmidt, questionable, probably not playing. Yeah. So the Canucks are going to have some roster decisions to make if that timetable is still uh, the one that they're working with. Yeah, we'll see if the NHL extends and makes it happen. But certainly an opportunity for, for some young guys to uh, to get suited up with the big club. And and uh, you never know. You never know what we might find. Okay, stay with me, John Jang, because you're on the other side of a quick uh, break here. Uh, as we need to discuss the future of work, you are on top of it. And you're doing exactly what both of us are doing, which is working from home. We'll get into that <laughs> as we take a quick break here on The Jill Bennett Show. I'm Jody Vance on 980 CKNW. Jody Vanson for Jill Bennett this week. Uh, today, Ontario made an announcement that schools in that province will be going 100% virtual learning when their April break wraps at the end of next week. It's a big move. So many threadbare nerves right here for parents. I can speak from personal experience and teachers. Of course, 
are essential, our front line, our teachers taking care of our kids in school right now in this time of a third wave of COVID-19. So how are teachers in BC faring? Well, let's ask just that of our next guest. Always a pleasure to welcome BC Teachers Federation President Terry Mooring to the show. Thanks for doing this, Terry. Thanks for having me, Jody. Really appreciate it. How are teachers doing? <laughs> it's a very, very stressful time. Um, and there are some things making it more stressful. I mean, yeah. by all accounts, we're seeing more cases of some of the variants of concern in BC, even more than um, Ontario. Uh, and we are also in a situation where we don't, th- there doesn't seem to be any plan for moving to state from stage to stage. So BC has been in stage two all along. Um, the agreement uh, in the spring, uh, uh, when all the partners came together and um, the health and safety documents were first created, and they've been updated many times since then, was that safety had to come first. And, you know, we're concerned that that is not the case. Uh, in other words, we've been in stage two all year. What would it take to move to a different stage, a hybrid learning stage, for example? Um, that information is unknown. And and in order for the five stages to be um, real <laughs> uh, and valid, you know that that information uh, needs to be in place. The other issue, of course, is what's the plan for vaccinating uh, essential workers? We've told it's been on hold. We know why. Uh, it's on hold. But what's the plan to make sure that essential workers are vaccinated? Uh, There's no timeline that I'm aware of around decisions around AstraZeneca. So what's the other plan? So I think the lack of planning is very concerning. Um, Teachers already, you know, have identified the fact that they're in a pandemic. They feel they don't have the tools to keep everyone safe. uh, And yet that's their job. And so they feel like a lot has been downloaded to them personally uh, without enough supports. And so, you know, it's a bit of a recipe for, you know, an incredibly stressful uh, situation for teachers in schools. And uh, No doubt. I, I can't even imagine personally as a parent. I mean, I have a 13 a year old in public school and I'm nervous about it. And, and the exposure notices are coming fast and furious. We see them. We see the list growing, uh, knowing that the teachers are going in every day trying to do everything they can. What is already, let's be real, already an extraordinarily stressful job without a global pandemic. But going back to the the wording within the agreement from all of the the, the teammates if we if we will, at the table together. The fact that there are no, I'm surprised that there are no, if, if we get to this number, Y will happen. If we get to this number, X will happen. You know, moving from phase to phase, are there no benchmarks in place, that, no mechanisms that trigger that automatically? Well, if there are, they're not being shared. And, uh, you know, that that's part of the problem is yeah. the lack of communication and lack of transparency around decision-making, quite honestly. Um, it is not, you know, it, it is, it's just not there. And so, you know, I understand that the BCCDC is having some conversations about moving from stage to stage, but there's nothing that has been presented, certainly. And we obviously have ideas about, you know, what, what it should be uh, or what, what some indicators should be. Um, and, and we certainly hope those conversations happen with the, you know, entire group. But it's important that teachers know what the plans are. And without that information, it, it makes it difficult to, 
you know, keep um, keep an optimistic t- mindset, especially when we're looking at, you know, we're setting records regularly right now uh, in terms of the number of cases. Um, and yet, you know, no additional uh, safety precautions are being ha- are happening in schools. It's great that we have a mask mandate, and that was a long time coming, far too long. And all along, we've been talking about, you know, having a prevention mindset as opposed to a reactive mindset. But we, you know, we haven't been able to convince folks that that should be the case. And so what we're seeing is, you know, waiting to to see, like, in school transmissions, you know, how high do they go? Uh, how many exposure notifications? How many cases in the community is it going to take before there's a change made? You know, we think that, especially in the hard-hit areas, especially when we're seeing lots of notification, uh, uh, exposure Exposures. notifications, that yeah. there should be, a, like, a, a hybrid model put in place at least, um, even if it's temporarily, even if it's in the schools that are seeing the highest exposures, um, so that, you know, you can reduce classroom density and and be able to physically distance students because that's not the case right now. It's only in a few districts that have a hybrid model in in place for, you know, some uh, younger students and then some mostly grades 10 to 12. Um, And, you know, we think that ought to be expanded, especially right now with so much unknown. But I can't tell you how concerning it is to teachers that we just don't have the data presented to us. Like, we just don't know how many... Uh, in-school transmissions result from the various exposure notifications that are going home. Uh, and so with so many notices going home, it's it's obviously very concerning. So what are some of the things, Terry, if you wouldn't mind sharing, that you would like to see? You've been very forthcoming, as you said. You got your mask mandate very much in large part to you being on top of that talking point from the very, very, very beginning. That's your mission. That's your goal. That's what I need. What do you need most now for teachers? Is it the data or is it the mechanisms understanding, you know, the the communication from the government? So you're not, hopefully you're not watching briefings and learning information from briefings that you are receiving intel prior to. Well, we do receive information, but sometimes information comes as a surprise at the briefings as well. And so that that's part of the communication problems that we've been talking about from the start. Uh, and and sometimes information has to be clarified following the briefings um, because it's it's you know not clear. Um, so that that's definitely a problem. But what we need and and the the data and the moving from stage to stage are two issues that are related to one another. Because if you don't know what the data is, then you can't set those benchmarks as to what should you know what should we move. Or what? Uh, when should those stages move? But um, what we would like to see right now is the ability for a regional approach uh, for when it comes to a hybrid or online learning. Um, and when we talk about like complete online learning, you know, the way it unfolded last spring was that uh, diverse learners, students with uh, particular issues. Um, and the essential service workers, children, were all stayed in school. So, you know, th- th- there was accommodations made for, for those students, and yes. we would see that continuing. But there should be a, a way to move from stage to stage um, at the district level, uh, even if it's different schools moving to different stages. I mean, you know, we're in a situation where exposure notifications are going home, uh, classes are asked to isolate, and then other families decide to keep their students home. And so we're really seeing a lot of disruption in education based on the exposure notifications. And what can we do 
you know, to, in response to the schools that, that have them repeatedly. Like, there must be a better way, even if it's temporarily moving to a hybrid model. I think that is a huge point, Terry. Honestly, I'm, as I said, my son is in a Vancouver school board district or Vancouver school district. So he is in that hybrid learning scenario. It, with the number of exposures that I have received over the last number of weeks, had he not been in remote learning for the majority of his school day, I absolutely would have pulled him from, from school. So I can't imagine those in districts feeling that pressure and then pulling their child from the education system and and losing out on that learning piece that why not set up for what could be, you know, the worst case scenario, which is that isolation, the need to go remote, why not just set up so remote is 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 a, an option at all times, even if not needed. Yeah, no, agreed. And, and that was what we tried to set up from the very beginning. Um, yeah. And, you know, it unfolded differently in different districts. But, uh, but wait, you know, what families are telling us, it's yeah. very frustrating. Families are telling us they just don't have enough information to make the decisions that you're talking about right now in terms right. of should my, should my child stay in school or should my child not stay in school. And that's part of the, the problem is that we've all along been getting information through reporters, through Facebook pages, you know, on Twitter, um, and, and that's not, you know, especially the uh, information being shared um, by families on those platforms just aren't reliable. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the information, we, we need to get it from the source. And so, you know, obviously we're still, we're still pushing for that. But at the end of the day, like, we really do need to know uh, what the plans are. Uh, Dr. Henry last week said that we're about a month behind Ontario. Ontario's, you know, decided to close all their schools indefinitely at this point. Uh, and so what's the plan in BC and, and how is BC so different? Um, we know that the variants of concern are uh, really um, playing havoc with the COVID numbers in BC. And, and we've you know been told that that will continue to increase. And so, you know, that coupled with the fact that we don't know, as I said, the, what the plan is around vaccinations. We've had Surrey teachers vaccinated. Different communities, are, especially small communities, are getting vaccinated. And so, so that's good. But I mean, you know, we've seen, you know, teachers, you know, very, very concerned about not being vaccinated. And uh, when we're already feeling that there aren't sufficient safety processes in place, uh, you know, it just it just makes it for a very, very stressful time right now. Well, we appreciate this update, Terry, and, and do keep us posted if anything changes in the in the days and uh, hopefully in the days ahead, you, you get what you're looking for in terms of the data required to calm some nerves or at least make the movement towards something to, to ease the tensions in this very difficult time. As always, we appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Jody. Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett this week. Jill is filling in for Simi, who has taken a week off. So you can find the fabulous Ms. Bennett on mornings all this week on CKNW. Uh, of course, we love it when we get to check in with Global News senior reporter Janet Brown, always with her finger on the pulse of what's happening. And Janet, you're bringing some breaking news on an action plan in Surrey where the vaccine rollout is concerned. Good afternoon to you and the listeners. Uh, just finding out about an hour ago that dozens, in fact, 160 Surrey firefighters will be helping to deliver COVID-19 vaccines. In fact, they will be helping to administer the vaccines. Here is Fire Chief Larry Thomas. More of what the plan entails. Yes, uh, that's true. We've been collaborating with Fraser Health for about a month now. Um, they need to increase capacity as the age-based program ramps up through May and June and July. And um, our firefighters are EMA licensed um, 
care providers under the Health Services Act. So they do have to complete about six hours of training and some practical uh, evaluation on the skills, and then they'll be trained out to help out uh, in the clinics uh, in, the, in our city. I think they were grateful for any additional help, um, and they're very pleased that we'll be able to help provide them uh, that quantity of people. Obviously, you know, that's not how many be working every day. I think they're looking at anywhere between a dozen to 20 people working per day uh, when the age-based uh, program wraps up, when supply increases. We can't impact our staffing levels for day in and day out. So it's uh, the firefighters that want to get trained are taking the training and then Fraser Health uh, goes through us and we'll schedule the opportunities for off-duty firefighters to uh, work at the clinics. Feels like a good ramp up here, Janet. This is good news for those in Surrey hoping to see the vaccine program uh, get expedited. Certainly does, Jody. And it sounds, uh, according to the fire chief, Larry Thomas, that things are going to be ramping up, he said, in maybe the next month or two as we move down in the age groups. And those age groups, as we've heard from Dr. Bonnie Henry, become larger, which makes sense. And uh, Mr. Thomas says so far, 80 firefighters have already completed that six-hour training course. 32 have done shifts in the clinics to sort of get that practical training. And, you know, I mean, everybody knows that firefighters are very used to delivering naloxone for overdoses. So giving vaccines uh, from a firefighter is really not a big deal. Last week, Larry Thomas said that he was concerned, Jody, for public safety because of the rising COVID numbers in Surrey among his staff and then also the self-isolations. And he even suggested last week that fire halls may have to close because of low staffing levels. So this This collaboration with Fraser Health is great news that firefighters are now also getting their vaccines today and tomorrow, along with Surrey RCMP and the RCMP in White Rock. And then last week, following the comments of Larry Thomas, the following day, the officer in charge of Surrey RCMP, Brian Edwards, also said that the stress among his members worried about contracting COVID-19 was extremely high. And he also said that he was concerned about the mental health of his members. Uh, he cited a case too, Jody, where some members responded to a sudden death at a home. And when they arrived on scene, everybody in that house was COVID-19 positive. So mm-hmm. imagine, you know, regular folks like us and our listeners, for the most part, you know, worried about COVID and their, our children at school, like you were talking about with Terry Mooring. But imagine being a first responder and not being vaccinated. And sure, they have the PPE, etc. And, you know, they're right. all gowned up and the goggles yeah. and everything. But yes, yes, certainly worried. So it's great news that they're getting their vaccines. Great news indeed that Surrey firefighters, White Rock, uh, RCMP in both of those areas as well. The hot spot here in BC. And Janet, you always, as I say, have your finger on the pulse. And we so appreciate you checking in and making sure that we're up to speed on all the things you're working on. Thank you for this. Such a pleasure to be on your show. Thanks, Jody. Jody Vance in for Jill this week. Glad to have you along on a gorgeous, gorgeous Monday. Hope it finds you well. Hope you're staying safe. Hope you're looking at the weather report and thinking, are you kidding me? Did you hear what Aaron Eubels was saying? Highs of 16 today, going up to 17 in the next couple of days, then 19 for a few days, right through the weekend. Oh, this is what I'm talking about. If you got to go home and stay home, maybe you could work from home close to your garden. Some of us love to garden. Maybe you don't have a yard. Maybe you just have a postage stamp of a patio to play with. You can still make it beautiful 
with plants and flowers or herbs. Having a green thumb really is glorious. Those struggling to cultivate plants, mm, bit frustrating, but fear not. That is why for the next 30 minutes, we have with us really a Canadian treasure. He is Frankie Ferragini. You know him as Frankie Flowers. He's with us to answer all of your growing, gardening, pest and plant related questions. So you can get on the phone lines right now and I can get my questions in too, because Frankie Flowers is here. Always good to connect with you, my friend. Thanks for doing this. Always great to connect with you too, Jody, as well. I looked at the forecast. Your forecast, wall-to-wall sunshine and overnight lows, right? Perfect around 7 degrees. It looks like fantastic weather to get outside. But a reminder, sunscreen is a must. Ooh, good point. You know what? We do forget that. Because, you know, you get in the shade and it feels cold. (laughs) Then you get in the sun, it's like, oh, it's so warm. It's great. And then you end up with that goggly-looking sunglasses mark on your face but we will take it because it just feels like we need to get out and dig in the dirt or even if we've got a smaller space so many people living at downtown core thinking how can i make my space better indoor plants uh, putting plants out on your patio we need some tips and tricks and i want to open up the phone lines now last i had you on people were lined up 10 deep to just get some questions on and you have so many straight up here's how you fix that answers to any any problem that you might be having with your plants so 604-280-9898 if you have a question for frank Ferragini about gardening 604-280-9898 or star 9898 is a free call on your cell and you know what frank last time i was speaking with you on the air i didn't get a chance to get to my favorite garden hack that you taught me years and years ago. I had an aphid problem, those little teeny tiny green bugs that seem to be like everywhere. And I ordered from all places online from Costco live ladybugs. Yeah. And they solved my problem. Yeah, Yeah. they're fantastic. You know, ladybugs are one of the few insects that uh, will actually go into dormancy during cooler periods. So when you get them, uh, they're generally in the refrigerator. So they're actually kind of dumb and sleeping around. And you pull them out of the refrigerator and you release them on your property. And they go right to attack those aphids. And they're a perfect way. That's a great way of sustainable organic gardening by using the good bugs. And there's good bugs out there. And that's the key is we always want to try to keep good bugs around and try to maintain and control some of the bad ones. So can you tell me how to get more bees in my garden? What can I do to help the bee population? A lot of times people think plants, 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 and flowers, and that's really important. But also what's important is the source of water. So sometimes even just simply having a bird bath in your property, you'll notice that honeybees and pollinators alike do like to dip their way into some water. You actually see them go for like a little swim. They'll fly across, they'll dip into the water, and they'll dip out. So A water source is really important for those, but a reminder as well is standing water in properties can also attract things like mosquitoes and other insects as well. So you want to empty that out on occasion, but a source of water key and then pollinating plants, those with flowers and, you know, bee populations are doing much better because even during this pandemic, it seems that our environment has benefited. So some of the bee population numbers have been pretty good in the last year. Oh, look at you, bearer of good news. For those who aren't familiar with your books, can you tell us a little bit about those books you've written about uh, all things flower-related and your heritage? Because many people will be like, hey, I know Frank Ferragini. He, he's the weather guy. But actually, you're, what, fourth-generation horticulturist? How many generations in your family? For, of yeah, we're, I'm, I'm actually gen, I'm gen three. I'm generation three. three. Uh, but uh, if, uh, yeah, my family are greenhouse growers. We have two garden centers. 
Uh, as well, I wrote four best-selling garden books, uh, Canadian best-selling garden books. One book on how to grow your own food called Food to Grow. Another one all in container gardening, which is called Pot It Up. Another one I wrote with a, uh, with a homeopath, Bryce Wild, and that's all about power plants and all about the plants you can grow for your health. And then my first book, which was called Get Growing, which is a general guide to gardening. So a little bit of everything. And uh, right now, gardening super popular overall. A lot of people want to get out there. And, you know, the number one trend, I found this really interesting, Jody, the number one trend across the country in landscape and landscape design is building an outdoor office. Yeah, it is. We all just want that space to get, A, away from our family and kids when we need to do the Zoom call so it doesn't get, (laughs) we don't all want to go viral during this time of COVID-19 when it comes to our work from home, but also having that sort of space that, and and particularly in in the lower mainland here in Metro Vancouver, very similar to uh, Toronto where, where you are right now, it's, it's space is at a premium. So container gardening is a big deal. What are some of the mistakes we're making when we try to create that perfect garden environment? You know, there's so many soils to choose from. There's so many plant foods to choose from. And maybe even, you know, where are we looking to make sure we're getting the proper plants for our zone or for the amount of light we might have? Right now, my garden is, my little postage stamp of a garden is super full sun. But as soon as the big oak trees around me, uh, maple trees around me fill in, it's very, very shady. So, you know, is that a is that a full sun part shade plant or is that a shade plant that I'm looking for? It's more shade plants. So you would really benefit from some spring flowering bulbs because that would give you the early kind of color that you could get in your garden. Even Helleborus would do really well there as well, yeah. which is a winter rose. It's a fantastic plant, one of my favorite ones. Really, I call it pretty sexy overall. But really picking the right plant <laughs> for the right place is key. Often people yeah. go into garden centers and they, they shop with their eyes, but it's like going to the grocery store hungry. You know, the right plants yeah. are the right space. So light is really what determines. And then with soils, of course, there are soils formulated for containers, and those soils are lighter. So they have the ability, like a sponge, that can absorb moisture but then dry out. If we don't have drainage in a container and we have too heavy of a soil and we get into a real period of rain, those plants will be sitting there wet for, like, too long. And have you ever sat in a tub for more than 24 hours? No. Your plants no. need to have dry feet every once in a while, so drainage is key. Drainage is key. I learned that lesson the hard way. It got mucky. It got stinky. It got buggy. It got gross. So now making sure that's another great tip. If you're wondering why your plants aren't thriving, check and see if you have drainage in the bottom of that pot. What are some hacks we can do, Frankie, with with creating uh, that drainage space? You know, the rocks at the bottom of the planter or, you know, I see some foamy pellets in some plants that I've purchased in containers. Yeah, you can use anything for the, the bottom basement. Even what I've done before is for large containers. If I have a, let's say that I planted a cedar and it was in a two-gallon pot, I'll actually take that two-gallon pot, I'll flip it upside down, put it in the base of the container. So that creates like a reservoir and put soil around it. And that's oh. what I could do to create drainage. Just that little bit. All you're doing is trying to create a reservoir in the bottom of the pot. little word of warning, though, is if you're using things with large foliage, and you're in a windy area and you have a large pot, that's when you would want to use rocks in the base because that would weight down the container so it won't blow over. So sometimes it's all based on your environment, but if you want to move the container around, you want to make sure that's a little lighter. So that's where you can use that empty pot trick that I have. 
Jody Vance in for Jill this week. Phone lines are open right now. 604-280-9898 or star 9898 is a free call on your cell. Frankie Flowers is our guest. He is a genius when it comes to growing, gardening, pest and plant related issues and questions. Now is your opportunity to really connect with an expert on the subject of growing your best garden, your best patio, your indoor house plants, what have you. 604-280-9898 or star 9898 is a free call on your cell. And we start with Leslie in Burnaby. Welcome to the show, Leslie. Oh, hi. Uh, hi, Frankie, too. I got two questions hi, here. I love growing my own veggies in my yard. Uh, I'm growing right now tomatoes. And they are from seed, and they're approximately seven inches high. And I'm thinking I'm going to start uh, giving them miracle Grow for veggies, and it's uh, 666. Do I mix mm-hmm. it half strength or one-third strength to start out? You know, you can mix it one-third strength and do that weekly, as a matter of fact. So then you're going to start to increase some of the fertilization. So they're seven inches Uh, The one thing that you'll notice with tomatoes, though, is that they can grow quite quickly. The key is, is what you also want to do is you can do the light fertilization, but we also want to make sure that they're not going to grow too fast and stretch because then we'll have that really kind of weak stem. Okay. Uh, So if you can, uh, keep them a little cooler at night. That's really going to help out as well. Allow them to dry out in between watering and allow them to dry out so they almost, you see the leaves kind of sit down and droop a little bit. That's when they're dry. You don't want that leaf to curl, but by allowing them to dry out a cooler evening, you'll thicken up the stems. That fertilizer will help them out as well. And then what you'll do is before you plant them outdoors is you'll adjust them to the light levels outdoors by putting them almost in part sun outside for a few days and then in full sun because we don't want them to scorch. Okay. Uh, second, thank you very much. No <laughs> second <worries>. question. <laughs> I got so great, right? I got, cre- that's beautiful. <laughs> I got creaking hmm. buttercup. Is there any kind of a pellet or a spray I could put on it in my grass to get rid of it? Not necessarily because, uh, well, there are some pre-emergents that you can use that can coat some of the weed seeds that will help out. But you're a little bit too late to put that pre-emergent down. That's corn gluten, so it's a little bit too late at this time. Outside of hand removal and, and that spot removal and then trying to thicken your lawn, and then also reminding yourself to cut your lawn a little bit thicker when we get a little warmer in the summer months. Okay. That's going to be a way to prevent. But that's really about it. What we, our goal is, is we want to make the lawn the invasive, aggressive plant. So by fertilizing, the fertilizing the lawn, cutting a little bit taller, hand removal, doing a top dressing with maybe some seed and some of those more bare patches, then we'll start to win the battle and make it more lawn than weed. Thank you very, very much. Thank you so much for that, Leslie. You know, Frankie got me thinking about, you know, trying to have your best lawn. I mean, it's the keeping up with the Joneses. Are there some tips to how we can prep our lawns now, you know, just coming out of the, 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 colder times. I mean, there was frost on some of the cars here in the lower mainland uh, over uh, overnight, but we are warming up. How do we best prep our lawns now? Is it time to, to feed and seed? Well, when it comes to, it's time to feed. So as soon as we start to see plants actively growing, we're starting to see those buds come out in the trees. That's the time when we really want to start to apply fertilizer because plants are active, including your lawn. With seed, your seed really doesn't germinate until your soil temperature is around 17 to 20 degrees. So generally, you, you know, we're getting a little bit warmer, so I would still throw some seed down, and then I would throw seed down in about two weeks from now. Another popular trend, though, right now is, you know, the, the, the most perfect lawn 
is not even trendy right now. What also is trendy is where you also have a little bit of a white clover and lawn mix. So the white clover itself stays green. You cut the lawn before you can see the white blooms of, of the flowers that happen. And then that clover will actually put nitrogen back in the soil and help the lawn itself. So now having these mixed lawns where they're not overly perfect is also very trendy. And dandelions are in style almost too because, you know, we want bees. So even if you have a bunch of dandelions, just say you're helping the bees. So it all depends on your personal preference. But uh, right now, almost everything grows or goes, I would say. I'm going to use that excuse for my dandelions because I, I rather enjoy them. Just I don't like them in my flower bed, but I like them on on the little parcel of grass that I have on my little. It's actually city property in front. I keep it nice and tidy, but I do love a dandelion, like you say. So when we're clearing out all of the the remnants of last fall and winter, all of the the leaves that have sort of stuck in our garden and whatnot, should we be tilling that soil right up and then adding more? Like we heard Leslie say, like Miracle Grow. Are we are we putting in some sort of um, soil mix into our garden? It's always a good idea to improve your soil if you if you have poor soil. But even every year, even just putting some manure and mixing it into your existing soil is a natural, organic way of adding nutrients back in. Compost is something else that you can put back right. in. You can, if you want to get more out of your garden, you could put a slow-release fertilizer like a shaken feed, which is a one-time application, and then it gradually releases. It all depends on the type of gardener you are. But make yeah. sure that investing in the soil is investing in the foundation, Good soil, good garden. Okay, Warren on Highway 1. Hopefully you're hands-free, Warren. Welcome to the show. Hi there. Um, Hi there. I, I'm having quite the battle between the birds, the, the crows, and the raccoons, and them pulling up my lawn. So whether it's a grub or a, a chafer, um, I'd like to know, other than grub be gone and trying to be diligent, what what's your best guess to fix it so I can have a decent looking lawn this summer? Good question. Yeah. So if they are attacking your lawn, like the way they sound, it it will be a grub issue because that's the food source, especially now that you said that there's raccoons that are also doing that same source. So in order to control grub populations, you have two different control methods that are available. One is nematodes and the other one is grub be gone and grub be gone is bacillus thurgentis. So it's actually a bacteria. The key about applying either the grubagon or uh, the nematodes is the lawn should be wet first, then it should be applied, and then it should be wet in again. So that way it actually goes down and infects the grub. That's one way to control. The other way to control the, the, the nuisance that's happening right now is by putting sometimes even a plastic owl up. We'll keep some of those away because owls are a predator to some birds. You can do that. But really this comes down to controlling grubs and those two options once again our grub be gone, and then also nematodes. Nematodes. Hopefully that answers your question, Warren. That's a struggle that so many are dealing with. Frank Ferragini, as always, such a pleasure to connect with you. Thanks for educating us and helping us with our gardens this year. Have a blooming good day, Jody. <laughs> and you have a blooming good day, too. People can find you at frankieflowers.com, yes? You got it. That's so. where I am. Yeah. It's always a blooming good time. Have a great day, guys. <laughs>